Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Susan Thompson of Colgate University, a host on New Books Network and African Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for tuning in. Today, my guest is Anais Angelo of the University of Vienna, where she is a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute for African Studies. She's written an exceptional book titled Power and the Presidency in Kenya, The Jomo Kenyatta Years, published in just 2020, just this year, by Cambridge University Press and its prestigious African Studies series. Angelo's book is part history, part political science that, for me, does two things. It analyzes the little-studied institution of the office of the president by studying its first post-colonial office holder, Jomo Kenyatta. Beyond illuminating the office of the president and separating it from the man who holds the office, Angelo's book is also a study of why the politics of land distribution did not directly involve landless Kenyans. All told, uh, Angelo's book is a study of post-colonial state building told through the process of negotiations that transformed Kenya into a presidential republic using extensive archival records. Angelo finds that neither the Brits nor the Kenyan Elites of the day intended to create a political regime with near limitless executive power. The result, to my mind, is a political biography of Kenya's first president. It's a story of distant and discreet politicians such as Kenyatta that also narrates Kenya's colonial and post-colonial history. Um, Anais, thanks for joining me today. I'm really excited to be able to learn from you. Thank you so much for having invited me and for being interested in my work. Yeah, it's it's a really lovely um, collection. I'm all, I've become more interested in um, recent years in archival work because, of course, things are opening up and we're getting a better sense of how archival methods can be used to voice those who are not part of the archives. But before we get any uh, into any of that, I, I always like to start my my interviews by asking about the researcher, the person, to frame them as an instrument of knowledge and the way, you know, the methods we choose, uh, the methodology we deploy, the concepts we choose, obviously, are shaped by who we are. So I wonder if you could start our interview by saying a few words about yourself, uh, not, not your childhood, of course, but your education. and What brought you to the study of Kenya? and presidential politics more specifically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I am French. Um, I was born in Paris. And actually, I think I became interested in African presidents from a fairly young age. Oh, interesting. My my grandfather was a construction worker and happened to have worked for a few years in Mali. Mm -hmm. And he got interested in, in African politics. But, you know, as a very in a very basic way. And one of the books he left behind him, because I've never got to, to, to meet my grandfather, mm-hmm. was a biography of Idi Amin Dada, written by um, a former minister of um, Idi Amin's government who had fled and uh, went to exile. And I think it, in English it would be called the, 
Idi Amin, the state of blood, it has a very, it has a cover with a lot of blood. <laughs> yeah, I know that book. It. I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and that's actually the, one of the first book I've read about anything related to um, African politics. And I got fascinated as a teenager um, in, in this um, in this book, by this book, and um, by, in the topic of African presidents, somehow, and as a French person, I, I also thought that, um, looking back at it, 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 there is a lot of debate about African presidents in in France, um, mostly because we have this France uh, Afrique, um, so this Franco-African neo-colonial relations between. Uh, French and African presidents. So mm-hmm. African president, it's very common to talk about African presidents in the news and there are many films or documentaries and, and um, fiction that has been written about this. So somehow I, 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 as I grew up, I could continue uh, nurturing this interest in various ways. Um, and so when I, when I did my undergraduate at uh, Sciences Po in Paris, I then went for one year at the University of Michigan in, in Ann Arbor. Mm-hmm. And there I had a fantastic class um, with Professor Howard Spean on African economies. And we talked a lot about the World Bank's structural adjustment programs and how they were completely inefficient. And one of the questions I was always asking myself was, why did African presidents accept these programs? And the type of answers I could get was that they had no choice. Um, but somehow I felt like I, I didn't know much about the, the agency of these African presidents, or I didn't know about the story told from their own perspective. And, um, and that's how I continued getting interested in this topic. Um, I think it's, it's really um, bordering um, um, very non-academic debates in France and then academic debates, of course, in political science. Mm-hmm. And when I got um, the opportunity to do a PhD, um, it was clear that I wanted to do something on African presidents. Um, but I, I changed the discipline. I, I left political science um, to, for history to explore a little bit more, you know, where African presidents come from. And I thought that this is something that I could not do in political science and something that I wanted to try to do in history. Of course, at the time, I didn't know exactly what I was going to to work on. And somehow Kenya was also, it was a hazard. I wanted to compare Jomo Kenyatta and Leopold Sedar Senghor, the first president of Senegal. Uh But um, while I was doing my, my PhD, the, the Senegalese archive closed. And then I realized that actually I had enough material to, to do something on Kenyatta. So that's how I, I ended up um, writing uh, only about Kenya and Kenyatta. And the book is, of course, based on my dissertation. Yeah, and it's such an interesting take because um, many of us take the office of the president um, for granted. So it's so interesting that you relate debates in your personal life, you know, just in French society, perhaps in your high school about the role of the president and their lack of agency. So, of course, we'll get to agency. Your book is very strong on showing how Kenyatta behaved and why he behaved the way that he did. But speak a little bit before we move to that. 
Why did you find that political science wouldn't let you ask the questions you wanted to ask in the way that you wanted to try to answer them? Um, well, it, it, it's also because so I, I did my master in political science, and then I thought of doing a PhD also in political science. And at the time, I had a project on trying to understand and compare the trajectories of all African presidents since independence uh, from a quantitative point of I mean, with quantitative and qualitative methods. Right. Um, so I did some research on many uh, the biographies of many African presidents, and I had picked uh, a few case studies, and one of them was Kenya. And then I went to, to Kenya to do a, a field work. And when I was there, it was a, it was a real catastrophe. I was not uh, doing anything because I realized that I had very fixed concepts or categories of analysis and that the complexity of Kenyan politics, but also the ambivalence of Kenyatta himself, was very difficult to translate into fixed categories. Um, and it, it was for me very difficult to, to somehow to, to, to settle on which categories would best explain Kenyatta's um, personal and political trajectories uh, from his um, early years of political socialization up to uh, indep Kenyan, indep Kenya's independence. And so, but there is another aspect of this story which is a more pragmatic one, <laughs> um, which is that I also needed to find a, a scholarship to continue to do my, my PhD. Of course. And I do think it's important to mention. <laughs> um, and so I, I, was, I found it very difficult to um, get scholarship for, for such a topic. And I thought that applying to a program in history would solve the two problems I had. One, the conceptual one and the financial one and that's how it it, it, it worked <laughs> um and yeah to a certain extent i was also very lucky that um the chair of global and african studies at the european university institute uh where i did my phd so my my supervisor professor doug moses got also interested in this um strange topic because i at the time there were really not so many people working on um african presidents um and their political biographies in an historical perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting answer because, of course, the pragmatic part is as important as the intellectual part. And um, exactly. Yeah, I'm really I really like your honest answer. But I wanted to pivot a little bit. You clearly did some incredible archival work. You struggled with how to make sense of what you were finding there. Sometimes it wasn't enough to, to, to make a story, to write a story of Kenyatta, because he himself left such few traces of his thought and his actions. He was, you know, a secluded president, I guess. You call him distant and discreet in your work. Are there, mm -hmm. how, how do you approach the archives when you don't know exactly what you're looking for? Yeah, I think I, I, my, my previous answer perhaps made it sound as if I thought that political science was too limited. But actually, <laughs> I think that it is because I come from political science that I was able to do um, research on this topic and the way I did it, because um, I think I somehow borrowed a, a theme from political science and tried to translate it in, in, into um, the history. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
But when I started my, my research, I had never done any archival research. I had never been to an archive. Um, and I didn't know what, how to deal with that. So my understanding of the archive was not only basic, but very naive because I thought that if you don't find what you're looking for, somehow you're a bad researcher. Right. <laughs> and um, so I looked literally everywhere. And um, I brought so many documents um, trying to locate Kenyatta somewhere. Um, and it was helpful because I realized two things. The first is that, well, there was not so much on Kenyatta himself and that Kenyatta did not want to leave any trace as a president. So I think somehow I, I managed to overcome, to overcome my fear mm -hmm. of not finding anything. Um, but the second thing is because I looked at so many different types of files and um, there were literally not so much, you know, that in the archives of the presidential office, even if there are files <laughs> called president's uh, presidential office, uh, at least in the Kenyan National Archives, I found some interesting references to um, presidential powers in different types of archives in the British National Archives. Um, but also in um, in the Kenyan archives, I found some references at least to to Kenyatta or some issues uh, related to the president. So I realized that um, I was not looking for the right thing. I was I I shouldn't look for Kenyatta himself. I should look for presidential powers. Mm -hmm. um, I was very lucky to find. Very early on in my research, um, documents on the in the Kenya in the British National Archives about um, the negotiate the political negotiations uh, of the in the Constitution, the Independence Constitution, and that's when I realized that the the making of presidential powers was not something obvious. Actually, n nobody. Uh, either from the British uh, administrators or among the Kenyan elite, had really thought about what yeah. it would be to have a president. Um, and because nobody had thought about this, when it, the question was, okay, so Kenya is going to become a, a republic, what kind of republic is it going to be? Is it going to be a presidential one? Then, of course, the question was, who is going to be the president and how much power is he going to be given? And I found documents related to these issues. And some of these documents were also referring to conversations Kenyatta had had with um, British uh, officials. Right. So this, this really helped me to refine the conceptualization of my project and early on go into the direction of the history of the presidential institution, of course, seen through, I mean, through the eyes of Kenyatta himself whenever it was possible. But when it was not possible, I tried to think, I, tr I tried to think what are the other actors who somehow are telling us something about Kenyatta or the president or their relationship to the president? It's such so, a, yeah, it's such an interesting answer because it's very clear that you have a political scientist perspective but you also have like the the tools of history. So it's an interdisciplinary study. I'm also trained as a political scientist. It didn't actually mm -hmm. occur to me when I was reading your book that this was a, a history book. 
So of course it is, <laughs> but in terms of its um, conceptualization and its tools, um, I thought it was, it's, it's a great interdisciplinary study. That's all I'm trying to say. Um, you have a very rich bibliography. So of course, archives don't stand alone. They stand in conversation with, um, you know, the author, you, and they stand in conversation with um, different books. So which authors informed your thinking and writing most profoundly? Um, I think there, there, I would have, um, two answers. I, on the, somebody who I, I really admired was, is, you know, um, Professor John Lonsdale, yeah. who has written a lot on Kenyan colonial history, but he has also written on Kenyatta and, um, he's, early years of political activities when Kenyatta was in the 1930s uh, writing as a journalist first and then um, joined a political party and, and somehow become more politicized. Um, what I very much like is that, um, well, it was, Lonsdale really took, um, always tried to think about well, he has this concept of the importance of moral values and political imagination, and he's really connecting that to, um, to, to I would say perhaps indigenous concept in this case to Kikuyu thought. Right. And I think that that's something I I aspired to do, um, which was of course very difficult, but uh, it somehow was a model of uh, <laughs> writing, and um, and also I think. Professor Lonsdale is a very, I, I was um, lucky to, to meet him. And then he, he, went, he was eventually in the jury of my uh, PhD defense. But he's also a very generous man. So um, he, always, uh, he was always ready to have a conversation. He, he, was, he was very open and, and gave me a lot of advice. And um, I think reading his work and having the possibility to also talk to him uh, was um, very formative, um, um, but I think that it's 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 not just about um, the authors I've read. Mm -hmm. It's also about uh, who I was able to talk to during the the dissertation, um, during my research. Um, I remember meeting once um, a, a political uh, scientist. Um, and I will remember his uh, name. Uh, Tom. I have to have to think for, for yeah, a second. No, it will fine. come back to my mind. Sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Um, and um, I remember telling him that um, I could not. Um, I will. I will. Um, uh, Tom Wolf. Yeah. Uh, okay. So he was working in in. Um, uh, for Institute of Polling in, in Kenya, but he's also a political scientist and has lived for a long time in, in Kenya. And, um, I, I remember going to him and, and talking. I was then in Nairobi and telling him about my research and the fact that there were very few, um, archives about Kenyatta himself, but that I had found one document that I thought was exceptional. Um, because it was a top secret document, so I was very excited because it was top secret. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, it was also, it was a, a document that was written by a prominent minister in Kenyatta's government, the Minister for Land, 
which is, of course, a, a very important industry um, because land issues were central to Kenyan politics and Kenyan decolonization and, of course, the formation of the new state. Mm-hmm. Um, referring to um, some troubles that were happening in the district and the fact that the president had told him that they had to, he and another minister had to clean that up. Um, there were not so many names, but there were, there was, there was quite, it, it was already quite telling. There was, it meant that these ministers had had a conversation with Kenyatta and that Kenyatta had, was aware of the political trouble going on and didn't want to intervene himself, but wanted to, to bring order back at any cost. Right. That's, that's, of course, the point um, of having a top secret document. Um, <laughs> and um, and I, I, so as I was talking to Tom Wolf, he, was, he told me, you know, just do research on this minister. So his name is Jackson Angaini. Mm-hmm. And he even told me to change the whole, my whole PhD and just write on Angaini, which was, of course, not possible as a third year PhD student. Of course. But um, but this was this was a great piece of archive of of advice because I it really I realized that I I had to do more than looking at the archives I also had to do some field work right and that's where the that I done and so looking trying to 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 see what was the biggest story behind this document in fact led me to work on the Mau Mau both on the Mau Mau um, after independence in Kenya. So the Mau Mau fighters, what happened to them after Kenya became ind- independent. Um, and um, the resilient politicians from the opposition and how they were also in, they were silent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is an important aspect of, of, of my research um, because um, it is about how once the president is in power, how does he maintain power and keep everybody quiet, um, even though he is not himself, um, he does not himself intervene or he doesn't always have the means to ensure order and stability on a on the whole territory. Um, so this. So that's why I wanted to mention that because it's not just about books, but it's also about all these informal uh, conversations I could have had. Uh, I, I had uh, as I was a student. Um, I was always very scared of these informal conversations, <laughs> <laughs> but somehow it really helped me and and pushed me to do um, better research. So when I did this field work in a district called Meru. I was trying to understand how Kenyatta, who, about whom I knew so, so little, how he would pick his ministers, and in particular, the minister for land. Right. What, 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 how, how, how was he trying to, how was he thinking? I was somehow trying to get into his head, but of course, by different means. And I, it was fantastic. Uh, two weeks of um, field work, interviewing, um, uh, old politicians um, who are very willing to to speak. Actually, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm um, sure. Yeah, and and I also had the opportunity to meet former um, Mau Mau freedom fighters, which was a completely different kind kind of interview. Um, and it was it was very impressive. Something to, I mean to to 
to meet these, these uh, fighters uh, um, who, of course, now are very old yeah. and um, not in a good health. So as a researcher, it was, it was very formative because I had been to the archives, I had read many books, but what I could see was that um, some kind of history, parts of history had not necessarily, it's not that they were not known, but because they had not been written, they were not known to all. While there were so many people who are eager to to know more about this history or to have their history known, so this was also a very um, formative experience in terms of why do we write? Um, and I thought that I had read all these books, and now I could understand why also these had they had been written, and what was the point of then writing something else. Mm-hmm. So somehow. This reading and talking and doing field work are connected to each other. And um, yeah, <laughs> I think that's right, though, because you can read all the books and then you go and speak to someone. Maybe they're older, maybe they're frail in the way you describe, you know, the Mau fighters must be in their late 80s and 90s by now. Yeah. Um, but they have a memory, which, of course, is a human memory. It's impartial. It's perhaps self-selected and so on. I think there is a lot to be said for putting the archives into conversation with people, you know, people you admire, Lonsdale or Wolf. Um, I've also met Lonsdale and I found him just to be a true intellect. He's just curious about Kenyan. He has that care of, you know, that ethic of care, I guess I could say in his work. And that's what Mm -hmm. I'm hearing from you. You were so curious, but also... Um, so able to follow these things up. So that, I think that is definitely a strength of your work. Meru, of course, is an important district in Kenya. We can get into that in a few minutes. But the power of mentors and being open to suggestions mm-hmm. is, is certainly um, something we can all benefit from, I think. And to that end, I mean, your book is, um, it's a very tight book, despite its um, depth it's, and its um, robust analysis. It's just over 250 pages, if I remember correctly, 10 chapters. So you write in a very clean, very accessible way. And, you know, beyond being about Kenyatta, it is, as you noted already, a book about executive power. And it's a case study for Africa because it also talks about post-colonial land distribution. And as your book makes mm-hmm. very clear, you know, Kenyatta's personality his kind of, you know, distant, discreet, secluded, um, shaped the institution. And Kenyans, of course, live with some of his personality quirks today. I'm sure the way the executive power is um, formalized through practice. But of course, I think one thing that you do very well in the book is articulate and make clear for the reader and weave together three important, you know, contemporary facets of Kenyan politics, the legacy of the Mau Mau, as you just mentioned, um, the land distribution policies and practices, because it was really like, if you can buy it, um, then I'll sell it, which excluded a lot of Kenyans, as you write about. And then, of course, the ways in which the the post-colonial state at the moment of post-coloniality, the, the state, you know, the executive branch in particular, co-opted political and economic resources, to my mind, um, creating a post-colonial patronage um, system. Mm-hmm. So, that's, so that's how I understood your book. Um, what, what would be the puzzle that frames your book in your own words? 
you know, there's always a disconnect between how the reader reads it and what the author intends. Um, you mean what, what I think is the main issues I'm, I'm trying to enter? Yeah. So in your, so you know how yeah. political scientists speak of puzzles, which of course is something we can talk about in critique, but how would you, because you, of course, one thing you had is you had this body of knowledge and you're gaining new information, you're talking to people, you're continuing to engage in archival work. How did the the core of your book come together? That's really my question. Mm-hmm. I think, um, I think, um, as I said um, before, the, the idea of um, how, how the presidential powers became an a political issue uh, was a very central um, idea to my to my to my research. Mm-hmm. A very central question. But um, thinking back um, at, at this, I think that I, because I was new to history, I was somehow I think very anxious to 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 write history in the right way. And um, the way I wrote it was very much as if probably as if I was, had written an, a novel, mm-hmm. um, though I've never written one, but <laughs> it was about trying to, to reconstruct, to tell a story. And this is the story of somebody who never really thought wanted to do, wanted to be in politics, never really shared his plans with anyone, suddenly finds himself in the position of becoming a, polit- a prominent political actor and knows that nobody wants him to be the leader. And by this time, and, um, and managed to, to become the most prominent actor. But it's also the story of someone who had an extraordinary political intelligence and who, I think, knew uh, politics better than anyone. And I think this is, of course, perhaps difficult to argue, but I think Kenyatta understood um, his enemies as, as much as well as his um, allies in politics in a very good way. And he could understand probably what they needed to, to be politically strong. So I think this is, this is what I wanted to do so. Of course, the question was, you know, how did, did he get into power and how did he stay in power? But this idea of telling a story was very, very strong for me, um, and it, it was something that accompanied me throughout the the, the research and the, the PhD years. Mm-hmm. Um, as a, because also I was um, trained as a political scientist, I was still unsure, you know, how to to do history, how to write history. And my supervisor once told me, you just put everything in a chronological order. Oh, dear. Of course, it's, it's more complicated <laughs> than that, but it, it helped me and really reinforced um, the sense of trying to, to tell a, a good story. <laughs> um, and it's only at the end, at the end of my research, that I realized that um, Kenyatta and the making of Kenyatta as the president happened at the same time at the, as the making of presidential powers and the presidential constitution. Mm-hmm. And that was, for me, it is still something very important because 
Um, there was no idea of what a president or an African president should be. Uh, what we see today as something obvious as being the African president concentrating all powers yeah. was not so obvious. And I, I also don't think that it was completely modeled out of the figure of the colonial administrator. I think there was so much hazard. And at the same time, it would also be limited to say that it's just hazard because Kenyatta had a very good idea of I mean, he was sure that he wanted to be in power. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, and of course, we could also um, make it even more precise because in the context of um, independence or decolonization struggle in Kenya, um, it was extremely difficult to settle on um, the, the figure of the father, what, what is called the father of the nation. Um, Somehow they needed the myth to hold a divided country together. Um, but at the same time, uh, there, was, there, is, there is nothing true about this myth. I mean, of course, everybody now knows that. But, um, but what we don't know is, you know, if it's not the myth, if it is not the myth of the father of the nation, then what is it? Right. And so my, my, it became clear to me that it's the story of so many people who were not in favor of Kenyatta becoming president, but had no means and not enough power to oppose um, his leadership. And, um, but all, thing, all of this um, really became clear uh, when I was finishing my book. And, um, and um, it, it, it's really a, a, that the story was suddenly becoming clear to me uh, in terms of the, the puzzle that I was trying to to, to understand. So, um, Well, it's such an interesting... Think, oh, sorry, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I think now the, the, the question, somehow this is not a question that I had at the beginning of my research, of but course. the question would be uh, what, where do African presidents come from and how can we explain and what kind of documents, historical documents do we have to retrace the political negotiations of presidential powers. Yeah, I think it's a it's an interesting puzzle that emerges um, through the arc of the book, and it raised questions for me. Like, are we talking about who is Jomo Kenyatta, or are we talking about what is um, Jomo Kenyatta? Because you write, of course, in the introduction about how his name was actually, he chose it, it became a, an African name, um, and his name um, became tied to Mau Mau, it became tied to power. So um, what would you answer? Is Jomo Kenyatta a who or is he a what? Of course, he's a human being. Um, but in the context of the presidency, he seems to be, what is Jomo Kenyatta? He's Kenya's first president. Okay, so what parts of his identity, his culture, his experience in prison, his negotiations with the British shape all of that? That's what I understood the book to be about. And it really got me thinking about my own work. Um, in other African countries, like how did Paul Kagame in Rwanda become the first president? Oh, he was the military commander. It's a very impartial answer. And I think what your book does so well is it gives us the tools to begin to think about the, the man, but also to think about the office. Mm -hmm. 
And that's my, I guess my, does, mm -hmm. is there anything in Jomo Kenyatta's, this who, what dichotomy that shapes the presidency? Of course, his son, Uhuru, is the president today. Is there mm -hmm. anything your book can tell us about maybe not political dynasty, but about the nature of presidential politics mm -hmm. in Kenya today? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I really like um, the distinction between who and what. I think the who question is um, something everybody wants to know. Um, and uh, it's also the, related to the illusion of biographies. They, we, we all want to know uh, who, who is who. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's probably fair and, and somehow more complicated to understand what um, a president is because it's about the, how he's relating to other peoples. And I imagine that for Paul Kagame, probably something very similar. He appears as this military uh, strong, the very smart. Mm -hmm. uh, leader, um, but at the same time, we have to understand what kind of authority does he have, um, and how he, as just as Kenyatta, how how he uses his authority politically to create alliances or to force some people to to do what he wants, exactly. or to force some people into a particular position, a political position. Um, um, I think I actually. What I, I now want to very much refrain from having to answer the who question, uh, <laughs> because it's, it's related to, because I have the impression that this, this is what we have tried to do for too long, mm -hmm. um, trying to understand their characters and, um, and we, we don't, <laughs> we will probably never know. But at the same time, I think the type of sources that historians or political scientists have access to also shape these two questions. Sure. Um, I, I was able to do some research, research on uh, Leopold Sedasanga, and it's incredible to see the type of archive that there, there is because Sanga was writing every day about politics to the French um, uh, ambassador, the, the French commissioner. Uh, something that Kenyatta would not, have never done. And of course, this gives a completely different image of what kind of president he was. Um, but I think, and, and when it comes to how, who is Jomo Kenyatta and perhaps how can we, how can this help us to better understand Kenyan politics today and in particular the politics of his uh, son, Uhuru, I think I would say that Kenyatta was a man who has always been surrounded by enemies. Um, and that sh probably shaped his personality or his political personality, if I can, of I course, can say so. Of course. And I think it's, it's the same um, for... And this, this setting shaped also the presidency because it is about holding together division, um, very fragile, very fragile administration, and I think somehow his son inherited the system, and is in the exact same position as his father. Um, so he has to make alliances with his political enemies to make his uh, government work. So he has worked with different various figures, either in the opposition, but also prominent politicians who also today are aspired to be his successor. Um, so 
I think this is the similarity that I see between the father and the son. Um, and probably it's more a question of political systems than uh, a question of dynasty. Mm-hmm. Even, even if I, I somehow it is also difficult not to get uh, to get away so quickly with the, with the concept of din- dynasty. I think something that I have not uh, worked on and could perhaps answer that question that is probably very difficult to work on is the role of um, Tomo Kenyatta's wife and Uhuru's mother, Mama and Gina. It's the connection between the two and it would also probably, it could perhaps answer the who question. Yeah, I think um, it's a good hunch. I haven't hunch. done any research on, on that, so I, I can't say much, yeah, it's unfortunately. A, it's an interesting hunch, though. You're probably right, because there's also something in like the family dynamic that we will just never know. And I, I asked the question, I should be more frank about my question. I'm a Canadian, so Justin Trudeau is our prime minister right now. He comes from Pierre Elliott Trudeau, one of Canada's most dynamic um, prime ministers and Canadians frame him as a as a product of a dynasty. No, he's a product of a state system and a political party system mm-hmm. that made him. But of course, his mother, Pierre's wife, is a is a central figure. I think that's a really interesting hunch. Canada has moved to speaking about Margaret Trudeau, but not in a political science or historical way. Mm-hmm. But I just wanted to pivot back um, to the Mau Mau uprising. So you have there's a there's a symbolic power for Kenyatta as part of the Mau Mau or not part of the Mau Mau. This is like a tension in the book. He he didn't actually participate, if I understood correctly, but he was able to mm-hmm. use um, the uprising as a way to solidify his power. So in your mind, what is the the role in Kenyatta's political thought or perhaps his political imagination of the Mau Mau? This is, uh, this is, I think, a difficult question. Um, I think Kenyatta did not engage so much with questions of political ideologies. He, he had some values, moral values, to use Lansdale, um words, um, that were profoundly Kikuyu, but at the same time, of course, it's difficult. To, it is impossible, I think, to, to, to say what Kikuyu moral value is because it has been renegotiated over and over mm-hmm. um, uh, over time. Um, but I don't think that Kenyatta has very strong ideas, or at least I didn't see it this way, about mm, political um, political political ideology. So he, he, his point is not uh, should the government. Uh, Distribute uh, the land. He, he. I think I can say that he is completely above these issues, and he thinks how probably how can I stay in power? Even if this is of course the shortcut, but um, he's he's such in a fragile political position um, that he's more concerned uh, with holding everything together, and he knows that he can do that because he's. He's seen both as a Mau Mau and not as a Mau Mau. And he knows that he's the, on, the only um, politician um, to be seen this way. And it's, of course, it's an asset because um, Ken, Kenya, I think Daniel Branch wrote that Kenya is not just a post-colonial country. It's a post-Mau Mau war mm-hmm. uh, country, a country that has been traumatized 
um, by the Mama War, but it's also an elite that has been completely reshaped uh, in the wake of the, the Mama War. So the elite itself has been create, created or emerged out of the Mama War. Um, so, um, well, perhaps now I also think that he, he probably, I think that um, now that I hear myself, I think John Monster would would disagree with me and say no. He he, there there was um, Kenyatta also had a, a particular perception of the Mau Mau as an anti-constitutional movement. Um, it's true that he was a man who had been very much in um, impressed uh, by the ceremonial aspects of politics when he was in in, in colonial Britain. And um, he is not a man of um, um, violent rebellion. Right. So he's someone who wants to to be on the side of the constitutionalist and the moderate. But I don't know still to which, to to which extent we can really talk about a political ideology and how much Kenyatta positioned himself uh, on the. Um, Questions of the, the Mama War. Although I should mention one more thing, which mm-hmm. is that Kenyatta was very much convinced that you have to work for uh, to that work is absolutely um, necessary to achieve anything in life. Mm-hmm. You can't get anything for free. It, this is something that he would repeat over and over again in his in his speeches. So, so of he, he was de facto against this idea of giving something for free to a, a poor person. Um, but again, I don't know if this is a question of political ideologies or equal moral values. Or um, sheer pragmatism. Yeah, and, and pure pragmatism. Yeah. But I think he's also very old when he comes to power. He, he's um, 70 years old. So... Probably his political imagination is less about national nationalist parties <laughs> and more about um, perhaps um, early colon early, early political parties during um, when Kenya was still a Brit- uh, British colony. But he's never been somebody who was part was part or was and the 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 maker of a big nationalist party with a particular with a vision for the nation as right, a whole. Right. And he 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 seemed, and correct me if I'm wrong, he seemed ambivalent about redistribution of land. And if I understood your analysis, if there's a willing buyer and then and a willing seller, then there's a mm-hmm. transaction to be made that of course um, favored mm-hmm. elites, politicians, and business persons. Um, it disenfranchised Kenyans who were already disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. Um, what 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 is the role of land in his thinking, if any? He didn't see it as a resource to be bestowed. That's for sure. What is the role of the of land? I, I didn't the role of land. of land. Yes, of course, land, yeah, as I you know, is so important in the study mm-hmm. of African um, politics. Mm-hmm. But what what was what was land as a commodity for Kenyatta? Um, I think, as I said, I think land is, of course, um, 
very important, a very important element uh, in his equal value. So having land is having authority, uh, manhood, um, and somehow seniority. But um, Kenyatta understands, I think, very well that land is a political resource. Um, that he can distribute land to um, because land has also so much moral value and moral power um, that he can use that to tame his enemies Um, but at the same time he was not aware of the technocratic and administrative um, intricacies of land redistribution um, and the the land negotiations with the British Um, and to a certain extent so he was he, he he did not seem to care so much. Um, so I would say that he's, he's aware that authority comes from land um, owning and that land can be a political resource. But for the more the bureaucratic aspect of land redistribution, he really stayed aloof from this um, debate and compli- complications. So I guess that's why you introduced the idea or the concept, I guess, of disempowered regionalism. He he distanced himself from um, the issue of land, definitely from the landless masses surrounding himself with his, you know, keeping his friends close, but his enemies even closer to, to that mm-hmm. end. Is it that Kenyatta, Kenyatta as president in the role of the executive created a highly centralized um, patronage-based state. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's fair to say, but at the same time, I wouldn't say that Kenyatta is the all, only architect. Good. Um, <laughs> because it's because um, the rest of the elite realized that they were either out of the state and state they were they would not have access to state resources if they would oppose a centralized state system or they are in and have access to state resources and actively participate to construct a centralized system that that post-colonial Kenya as an extremely centralized state emerged mm-hmm. um, and that's why Kenyatta so probably so um, not only so powerful, but also so visionary, because he understood that um, the 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 other political actors did not have either the resources, um, but also the financial land or even legal uh, resources to oppose this kind of um, of central strong state, mm-hmm. um, and that. To exist and survive politically, they had to be part of this of this um, state model somehow, um, and they understood that very well. And I think that's how that, that's that's why it, it came into into um, uh, that, that that's why it emerged. I was always um, impressed uh, by the way the constitution in 1963 or 64 mm-hmm. was um, was. Uh, phrase that when it comes to presidential powers, it is said that the president, um, it was said that the president has the power to nominate um, the members of the government 
and do any other thing. Yeah. And uh, of course, some act politicians thought to oppose that, but they were they were too weak um, to for an alternative state system to come into force. Of course. And um, and and it is not that Kenyatta concentrated uh, all the powers yet. It is simply that the presidential powers were vague and not uh, clearly thought of and still undefined and nobody really knew what it would mean at the time and then it would be slowly slowly defined it's, but um yeah it's such a fascinating answer um of course i'm sitting in the united states the trump presidency has completely reconfigured mm -hmm. the norms of the presidency <laughs> um here in the united states and i say that as an outsider i'm just look, looking at it as a political scientist um your book gives us a lot of insight to how presidential power works regardless of the system because states um, have their own actors and their own dynamics and different things happen, but there's always some, you know, causal paths, I guess, some causal lines that um, political scientists can follow. So if you're studying Trump, you should probably read a nice Angelo's um, book. I want to begin to pivot because we've I've kept you for over an hour. Um, I'm really fascinated in all of my interviews about the cover the image that you chose. So you have a British um, official, looks like a military official in his white outfit, and then Kenyatta next to him in clearly um, perhaps a Kikuyu beaded cap holding a, cons uh, an, an, I think it is the constitution of Kenya. What's the, is there a story behind your cover, your choice of cover art, cover image, I guess, in this case? Um. Yes, so my choice was somehow limited because um, I, I was asked by Cambridge University Press to pick a, a picture that they would have the um, uh, copyright for. Mm -hmm. uh, but I picked this one because um, Kenyatta is seen as, he's celebrating independence. Um, he's holding this constitution um, which I'm not so sh I'm not so sure he has read. Actually, <laughs> I don't know. I say that uh, with a, uh, in a bit to, to to make a joke. But during the independence con uh, con negotiations, he was he was always silent. He didn't like this kind of very long meeting, and he didn't like to say what he was um, to to reveal his mind. Mm -hmm. um, he didn't like bureaucratic uh, work. So, um, and he had other people do the uh, tricky, uh, complicated political and legal stuff for him. Um, but he's, so Prince Philip is uh, uh, bowing his, his head. Oh, that's Prince and, Philip. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and Kenyatta is uh, holding the constitution. He has his very famous uh, Luo hat mm -hmm. uh, on his head and his fly whisk. Um, and Kenyatta was said uh, to be an amazing orator. He would speak very, very uh, well, especially in Kikuyu and Swahili. Uh, the British would get mind, mad because uh, he would use a lot of the figurative um, expressions and that they could not uh, translate <laughs> properly. So um, he was not sure he would say that uh, Kenya will take uh, uh, Britain by the tail and shoot it, or <laughs> is it just talking about a different, uh, any lion? So. 
it was there would be a lot of a discussion about what Kenyatta was actually saying. So what I see with this image is is um is a very a powerful man that man um uh on stage um and he's alone as well and uh this was something that I was I was not sure I thought maybe I would pick a picture of him and his the independent government but I somehow wanted to emphasize um the uh, idea of Kenyatta being an isolated um player yeah and um and he's also has his eyes half closed so he's he's as he once said he he had something cooking i think on this picture <laughs> and um that's that's why i picked this um this picture and i really wanted also to emphasize um the idea of um the political negotiations of uh powers um which I think is the first, I mean, it's an important aspect of my book and not just the, the man. Exactly. I want to see in, in, uh, in action. <laughs> I mean, it's a stunning image. And of course you point out the whisk. I didn't even notice the whisk at first glance. That becomes an important political symbol. Um, D- Daniel Eric Moy, of course, carries a, a whisk everywhere that he goes. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a really <laughs> multifaceted and, um, you know, just a gorgeous cover, a gorgeous piece of um, analysis. Thank you for your work. Um, just to finish here, my very last question for you. What are you working on now? What can we look forward to from you? Now I have um, a project on um, Kenyan women who were politically active in the 60s and 70s in, in formal politics. So especially women who campaigned to become a for to become a parliamentarian mm-hmm. in, right after independence. Um, this was something that uh, uh, was certainly missing in my book that I have not talked about women at all. Uh, and I thought um, it, it, I have to interrogate that. So now I'm, I've shifted and try to do, um, I work on a different type of invisible actors. Uh, this time it's not uh, the president. <laughs> women, but uh, it's also about um, the question of, are women really, um, are, are they really invisible in formal uh, politics uh, right after independence? Or uh, do we, is there anyone who wants to make us believe that <laughs> there were no women in in high or elite politics. It's mm-hmm. a great, that's a great um, second project from a, a wonderful f- first book. I've been interviewing Anais Angelo on her book, Power in the Presidency in Kenya. Thanks for joining us.